May I express our appreciation to you for joining us today in worship with the University Church of Christ. I am delighted to speak to you today about the great love of God. I can't think of any lesson that would be more appropriate for us today than to talk about the great love of God. I can't think of anything that we need more than to know that God loves us. In view of today's crisis and all the problems we face, there may be a tendency on our part to doubt the love of God. May I express our appreciation to you for joining us today in worship with the University Church of Christ. I am delighted to speak to you today about the great love of God. I can't think of any lesson that would be more appropriate for us today than to talk about the great love of God. I can't think of anything that we need more than to know that God loves us. In view of today's crisis and all the problems we face, there may be a tendency on our part to doubt the love of God. And so I want you to know today that God loves you. Many of you can name the text that we will use for today. You would say John 3:16, And in fact, many of you could quote that text. You would say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This passage has been called the golden text of the Bible. And I suppose it is the favorite passage of more people than any other passage in the Bible. Sometimes this passage is called the little Bible because it contains in capsule form the gist of all of the Bible. You could take all of the message of the Bible and boil it down to this one verse. In fact, to one word found in that verse the word love. In this verse, it is used in its past tense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, on one hand, you have a loving God, a giving God. And on the other hand, you have a lost world, a receiving world. What was wrong with the world that would motivate God to make such a sacrifice to save the world. It is the fact that the world was lost without God and without hope. And God loved man enough to send his only begotten son to this world to die for man. Satan, however, has tried to make man believe that God hates man and wants to damn him. The devil would like for people to believe that God is like a fiend lurking in the darkness, ready to pounce on man and destroy him at his whims. But that's not the picture of God I find in the Bible. The Bible tells us that God is a loving God. He's like a father who is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. In order to encourage man to love God in return, God has called us to repent because we love him and because he loved us. In the Old Testament, the Bible tells us time after time about God's plan to save us and to send a sacrifice to die in our place. For example, in Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Messianic prophet said, All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus went to the cross with our sins upon him. He took our punishment for us. And so throughout the Old Testament, God tells us about his plan to send a sacrifice to die in our place. It is, however, in the New Testament that this plan is fully revealed. For it is in the New Testament that that gift is given. The doctrine of God's redeeming grace and his infinite love is the basic truth upon which all other doctrine must rest. We must love God in return because he loved us. And we must preach that love of God in order to motivate men to love God and serve him. We are to serve him because he loved us. The doctrine of God's redeeming grace is at the very heart of Christianity. And if we preach doctrines and commandments and laws to be obeyed without preaching the great love of God, it is but chaff, and it is to feed men upon the husks. And so we need to preach the great love of God if we're going to preach the gospel of Christ. The Bible teaches that the love of God is at the very heart of the gospel of Christ. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The word power in that verse is from the Greek word dunamis. From that Greek word dunamis, we get our English words dynamite, dynamic, and dynamo. And so the Bible is saying that at the very heart of the gospel of Christ is God's power, and that power is his love. It is that love that motivates us to want to serve him. Paul declares then that the gospel, the love of God, is at the very heart of Christianity. But someone may say, but are not laws and commandments included in the gospel of Christ? They are indeed. There are laws and commandments that must be obeyed. But this obedience must come as a result of hearing and believing the sweet old story of Jesus and his love. The word gospel means good news. But in what does the good news consist? Is it not in the fact that man was lost without God and without hope? He could not save himself. But because God loved us, he sent Jesus to die in our place to save us from sin. That is the gospel, the power of God that leads to salvation. There's a power in the cross and in the death of Christ in our behalf. In John 12, verse 32, Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. There is a drawing power in the cross. There's something about the cross of Christ that makes us want to serve God. And it is the fact that God's love is expressed in the gift of Christ upon that cross. And so if we would preach the gospel, we must preach the death and suffering of Christ, the innocent dying for the guilty, dying that we might live, if we would preach the gospel of Christ. At Romans 2 and verse 4, Paul said, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? It is God's love, God's goodness, 
that leads men to repentance. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, John writes, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then in verse 19 he said, We love him because he first loved us. And so it is God's love that causes us to love, that motivates us to love God in return. You've seen a little pile of trash on grass at times. If you could look under that grass after two or three days, you would find that the grass is yellow, lifeless, and feeble. And if you could look at a little blade of grass in slow motion, you would see it grow along the ground until it comes to a crevice or opening in that pile of trash. And then it will turn upward and come out of that trash. And once outside, it takes on new color and life again. What is it that draws that little blade of grass to that crevice and that draws it upward and that gives it new life and color? You say it is the, the sun, the light of the sun, and that's correct. In like manner, man is crushed down beneath the burden of sin, unable to save himself. But the love of God in gentle kisses falls upon man. God's love is expressed to him, and it draws man upward, and it gives him life and life and color again. And so it is the love of God that must be preached if we're going to reach men with the gospel and motivate them to love God in return. In order to make men love God, he manifested his love to us. But when we speak of the love of God, how shall we adequately declare it? How shall we illustrate it? To what shall we compare it? Well, we may think of the love of Damon and Pythias. Perhaps you've heard that story. These were two men who loved each other. They were very close friends. Damon was in prison and was scheduled for execution. His friend Pythias was visiting with him. And uh, Damon said, I wish I could get out of here for a few days. I have some business that I need to take care of before I die. Pythias said, why don't we ask the king if I can just take your place and stay here in prison until you get back. They asked the king, and he was willing to do it. But he said, now, Damon, if you're not back when the time of execution comes, Pythias will die in your place. They agreed to it, and Damon left. The day of execution came that morning, and Damon was not back. The hour was approaching. And finally, Damon walked in, and he said, Pythias, you can leave now. I'm back, and you can go ahead and go home. Pythias said, no, you go ahead and leave, and I'll take your place and die in your place. They got into an argument over which one would die for the other. And when the king saw that, he was so moved by their love for each other, he told them he would allow both of them to live if they would allow him to participate in that great love. But you know, that story doesn't illustrate the great love of God. Because that's the love of a friend for a friend. One was willing to die for his friend. But Jesus did more than that. God's love is greater 
In Romans 5 and verse 8, Paul said, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God's love was even for those who were sinners. How then may we illustrate the great love of God? We may think of mother love, and surely there is no tie, no sentiment known to man that is closer than mother love. All of us have been the recipients of such love. We may think of the swan mother who plucks the feathers from her own breast to line her nest for her young. Or we may think of the love of a mother eagle. She builds her nest up in the top of the mountains. She lays eggs in that nest and she sits upon them. And finally, little eagles are hatched out. But a forest fire begins to creep up the mountainside and the smoke warns mother eagle that there is danger coming. She flies away from her nest and she does everything she can to encourage those little eagles to follow her. But when it is noted that they cannot fly, she flies back to the nest, covers it with her wings, and burns to death with her young. That's mother love. But mother love reaches its climax in the human mother's bosom. Sometimes mothers give their lives that a new life may exist. I have known of mothers who died in childbirth. But even when a mother does not give her life for that child, she gives of herself. She takes care of that child through the helpless days of infancy. She cares for that child through the ungrateful days of youth. She follows him into adulthood, even following him through crime and shame sometimes to a disgraceful death, still loving him, still willing to die for him. That's mother love. All of us have been the recipients of such suffering and sacrifice on the part of our mothers. But if we could concentrate all mother love into one mother love, it still will not illustrate the great love of God. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, God said through the prophet Isaiah, Can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. You can't imagine a mother forgetting about her child and nursing that child, feeding that child. But God says, even they may forget you, me sometimes, but though they may forget, I will not forget you. And so God's love is even greater than a mother's love. How then can we illustrate the great love of God? To what shall we compare it? Well, poets sometimes have sung of God's love and they've written poems about God's love. But when we analyze their poetry, usually they say, it is too great for us. I cannot express it. One poet has said, could I with ink the ocean fill were the earth of parchment made and every blade of grass a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, and the scroll could not contain the whole, though it stretched from sky to sky. May I explain that poem 
for the benefit of the little ones who may not understand that language. Suppose all the water in all the oceans of the world was ink with which to write. Suppose every blade of grass, a quill, was a fountain pen with which to write. Suppose the sky was the parchment, the material on which we write. And suppose every person on earth was a scribe, a writer, to write about the great love of God. The poet has said, the scroll could not contain the whole, though it stretched from sky to sky. It would not be big enough to enable us to write of the great love of God. And so poets usually mean, after they've tried to express God's love, it is too wonderful for us, we cannot express it. How then can we describe the great love of God, and how can we illustrate it? The only way to do it is to take God's expression of it. The only way that it can be adequately expressed is to take God's expression of it. There are two things at least that man cannot measure with human measurements. One is God's love, and the other is man's sin. We don't have any scales large enough. We don't have any yardstick long enough to measure the great love of God or to measure the depth of man's sin. But we get an idea of both when we see the sacrifice that God made and the price he paid to redeem us from sin. We can only know what we can see and then we sometimes can't evaluate it. We cannot know the merit of one sin. How much punishment should a person receive for one sin or for a life of sin? We can't really know. We can't measure those things. But if sin were not so terrible, if its consequences were not beyond all reckoning, then God would not have paid the price he did pay for our redemption. The gospel is painted on a black background of sin and despair. When you think about man's sin, his lost condition, it helps you to understand what God has done for us. If I should show you this little piece of paper, most of you could see it clearly, maybe it's not as clear to others. It's a little difficult to see. But suppose I put it on this background, this black background, then you can see it more easily. In like manner, I can tell you about the love of God, and how much he loves us and what he has done for us, but you may not fully appreciate it. You may not really see God's great love until you see man in his lost condition without God and without hope. Then you begin to appreciate the sacrifice that God made to redeem us from sin. Man cried to God for deliverance. And God heard man's wailing cry and resolved to redeem him. But as God looked out over all of his dominion, where would he find a suitable sacrifice to offer in man's place? All of the animals that had been offered upon Mount Zion during the age of the Old Testament people could not remove one sin or save one sinner. Hebrews 10 and verse 4 we're told that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Where then could we find a suitable sacrifice? All of the money in all of the world 
could not purchase the salvation of one soul. For Jesus said in Matthew 16 and verse 26, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? All the money in the world couldn't purchase the salvation of one person. Where then would God find a suitable sacrifice? God robbed heaven of his richest jewel. He plucked the fairest flower that bloomed in the paradise of God. He sent Jesus, his only begotten son, into the world and sent him to a world of sin and sorrow. He was born of a woman and lived among men and died on the cross, all because he loved us. But we do not really see the full test and strength of God's love until we come to the dark hour of the cross. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus has eaten the Passover feast with his apostles in that upper room. He has instituted the Lord's Supper. And then Judas left to go to betray our Lord. Jesus led the other 11 apostles to the Garden of Gethsemane. When he went into the garden that night, his soul was exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. He knew what was before him. The suffering of the cross was before him. When he went into the garden that night, he left eight of his apostles in one spot to watch for the coming mob. He left three of the apostles, the inner circle apostles, Peter, James, and John, in another spot. And then he went to a place where he was alone and fell on the ground and prayed, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He arose and went back to his apostles and was sorely displeased to find even Peter asleep. He rebuked them and said, What, can you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. And then he went back to that spot where he was alone, fell on the ground and prayed again. Three times that night he prayed the same prayer. Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I wonder why God did not hear him and answer that prayer. Have you ever thought about it? Could an earthly father hear his son pleading for help like that and refuse to go to his aid? Suppose we have a great general of the army standing before us, and on his shoulder are the stars that show his rank and power and authority. Behind him are great columns of soldiers waiting to move at the command of the general. And suppose we see the general's little boy, about four years old, playing nearby. And we see a, a fiend grab that little boy for the purpose of tearing him limb from limb. And we hear that little boy crying to his father to save him. We see that little boy reaching for his father. And we see those soldiers look to the general, awaiting his command to go and save that boy. They have sufficient power to save him. But the father just stands there. He doesn't obey his son's command to come and save him. He watches him 
die and hears his death cry, could any earthly father do it? Could any earthly father hear his son crying like that, crying for help and not go to his aid? Surely not. Then what shall we say for God? Has his heart petrified into stone or ossified into bone? Surely not. God heard that cry and his heart was moved. And if I may be permitted to describe God with the parts and emotions of a human being, anthropomorphism, if you please, I'll give you that picture of the scene and that part of the scene. That wailing cry from Gethsemane went up to heaven and the angels ceased their singing and stood at attention. I see them look to the Father, awaiting his command to go to earth to save the Son of God. I see the Father seated on the throne of the universe and surrounded by angels and archangels. I see the great chest of the Father as it begins to rise and fall with emotion. I see his chin as it begins to quiver. And I see the tears as they course down his cheek. Surely the Father will now remove that cup of suffering. He looks again, and he sees that infuriated mob creeping steadily up the hill toward the Garden of Gethsemane, like an angry beast stalking its prey, and led by Judas Iscariot. The Father looks again, and he hears the cry of the Son of God. The anguished cry of the Son of God again pierces the heavens, and the angels weep. Will the Father now remove that cup? The Father looks again, and another scene arises before him. He looks down through the ages, and he sees all the billions and billions of people who live upon earth. He saw you, and he saw me, traveling toward the brink of eternal woe, and he loved us. He loved us so much that he determined to redeem us at all costs even at the price of giving his son. I see him as he dispatches an angel to earth with this message. My son, it is not possible to remove that cup. If you do not drink that cup to its bitterest dregs, then all of my children of all of the ages will be lost forever. And the angels ministered unto him. He was heard in that he feared Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 7, or 7 through 9. Then the Son of God arose and went back to his disciples, no longer nervous and agitated, but calm and resigned, because the angels have ministered unto him. Jesus said, sleep on and get your rest. But then he saw the mob coming into the garden, led by Judas Iscariot. And he said, arise, let us be going. He is at hand that doth betray me. Jesus met the mob fearlessly and meekly surrendered to them without resistance. They dragged him through the streets of Jerusalem that night and carried him before Annas and before Caiaphas, both of whom are said to be the high priest, and was condemned. They took him before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jews, and he was condemned to death for blasphemy because he admitted that he was the son of God. 
But the Romans had taken from the Jews the power to put people to death. And they had to take him before Pilate, the Roman governor, to have Pilate sign the death warrant. They took him before Pilate, and then Pilate questioned him, but could find no fault in him. And he said, I'll just scourge him and release him. But the Jews would not allow it. And Pilate did not want to offend these Jews because they were his constituents. They could cause trouble with him to the emperor, and he might lose his job. So he didn't have courage to release him. When Pilate heard that Jesus was from Galilee, he remembered that Herod, king of Galilee, was in Jerusalem at that time. So he said, I'll get him off my hands and out of my hair and send him over to Herod. He sent him to Herod. Herod examined him and could find no fault in him, no cause for death. And Herod had fun with him, made fun of the fact that Jesus claimed to be a king. And then he was sent back to Pilate. Before Pilate was the fourth trial, before Herod was the fifth trial, and then before Pilate again was the sixth trial. Pilate finally gave up and turned him over to the Jews to be crucified. He was carried to Calvary. There they nailed him to the cross. And there he hung by the bruised and bleeding tendons of the quivering flesh, dying for you and for me. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. Then they took his body down from the cross, limp and lifeless, and laid it in the rock-hewn sepulcher of Joseph of Arimathea, where it slumbered in the solemn silence of death for three days. And early on Sunday morning, he arose from the dead, bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel, a fact attested to by the fact that millions of people the world over today is thinking about the resurrection of Christ. He was now prepared to be the Savior of the world. And he sent salvation unto every man, every creature in the world, upon simple and easy terms. He said, you must believe that he's the Christ. Except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. He said, you must turn away from sin and repentance. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, Luke 13 and 3. He said, we must confess him. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10 and 10. That's the confession the eunuch made in Acts 8, verse 37, when he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. If the whole world was perishing before Christ came, if the world today is still without Christ, the world today is still perishing. If you're not a Christian, if you've never obeyed the gospel of Christ, Jesus invites you to come to him. He loves you. He wants to save you. He died in your place. Have you no place in your heart's affection for a Savior like this? God loves you. Jesus died for you. The angels in heaven are concerned for you. Can you, the one surely most involved, be indifferent and unconcerned? 
the sun refused to shine upon the crucifixion of our Lord, can you look upon it without even a blush? The earth trembled when the Savior died. Can you look upon it without even a tremor? The rocks were sh shivered when the Savior died. Can your heart remain unbroken? Can you look at the cross and remember that Christ died there in your place and then refused to submit to his will? I'd like to ask you to close your eyes and envision the cross and Christ hanging upon that cross. And think of these words of perhaps the most beautiful song ever written. When I survey the wondrous cross, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love or sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The Lord loves you. He encourages you to come to him. If we may assist you in that, let us know, and we'd be glad to assist you in any way we can. As I close, let me summarize what I've tried to say today in this way. God first loved you. Love him back. God first loved you. 